Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. John Schmelk, Lance Ameta with you. The phone number, remember folks, it's the new one, 973-667-1960. Again, 973-667-1960. You can also send in your questions to hashtag GiantsChat or if you prefer... You can send them in via the internet. Just go to Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. Again, that's Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. And again, you can also send it on Twitter uh, at Lance Meadow and at Schmelk for today's show. We hope to have Jonathan Casillas, former Giants linebacker, who coincidentally also played for the New England Patriots for half a year. And he's somebody that was coached on special teams by Joe Judge and linebackers by Patrick Graham. And Lance, we're going to get him on here in a second. I'm going to give him a call, but it should be a really exciting guest. Yeah, because of his various connections, as you just laid out. He's clearly a former Giant, so that brings him closer to this team. And then, of course, his time with New England, which wasn't very long, John. It was actually half of 2014. People forget he was traded in October of the 2014 season from the Bucks to the Patriots, but became a key contributor on special teams for that team, played alongside Nate Ebner. He and Ebner had a number of special team snaps. If you go back and you look at their numbers, you probably pointed out Patrick Graham was his positional coach and he was with Joe Judge and Bill Belichick so if there's anybody that's been exposed to a number of people that have come from the Patriots organization there's no doubt about it it's certainly been Jonathan Casillas and when you take into consideration also the amount of players that he has been with over the course of his career I think he could add a lot of insight on that front on top of the fact that remember you know, he was one of the players that went through the 2011 lockout and that's an off-season that we've brought up ourselves a lot on this program, but a number of other people have brought up weighing the comparisons between 2011 as well as this current off-season. But the big difference was in 2011, you could call up your teammates, you could get together, and you could have group activities because nobody had to deal with the quarantine factor. However, with that being said, now that the state regulations are loosening, it actually has presented players who are still within the same region of one another to actually coordinate some group activities. Yeah. So I think that at least has been beneficial, John, from that standpoint to maybe have somewhat of a comparison to 2011. Well, and the guy we're going to talk to it about is Jonathan Casillas, two-time Super Bowl champion, once with the Saints, one with the Patriots, and, and honestly, one of my favorite guys to talk to in the Giants locker room in the last 13 years that I've been working with the team. Always smart guy to talk to, very thoughtful. John, long time no speak, my friend. John Schmunk and Lance Meadow on Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com. Uh, we hope you and your family are safe and healthy. How's everything going? Everything's going well, man. Thanks for that. And um, Schmoke, you got me over here. Bless it, man. I appreciate those words. Hey, no, man. Dude, I'm serious. I love talking to you because, you're, you know, you studied the game. And I really appreciate it when somebody studies the game and they really, you know, take a real hard look at things and able to really talk about things, you know, with, with some real deep thought behind it. And I want to start here, Jonathan, because one of the things that I always remember you talking about in the locker room is the story of when you got traded to the New England Patriots midseason back in 2014 and you asked for a defensive playbook. Can you tell the folks how that conversation went? Well, yeah, so um, 
just to give a little backstory, I was playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the time, and um, we were fighting every week to be the worst team in the league with the Miami Dolphins. <laughs> I, think, I think we were 0 for, you know, 0 for 7, 0 for 8 by the time I, you know, I ended up getting traded to New England. And first day in the building, you know, I tried to get there as early as possible. You know, I woke up super early for the pickup, the car that's going to pick me up so I can, you know, get in the building and get my playbook and, you know, start getting after it right away because, you know, Bill told me the day before, you know, when I was in Tampa, he's like, look, we're, you're playing on Sunday, so you better be here tomorrow for practice. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm just, just going to stop living in Tampa and just move to New England right away. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Fine. Okay, cool. So I did that and, um, you know, try to get try to be in the building as, as early as possible so I can get, you know, caught up on at least to be prepared for Wednesday, you know, to get through Wednesday. And first person I see is Tom Brady. He welcomes me to the Patriots. Hey, Casillas, you know, it's good to have you on board. And now I'm walking in the building, head high, chest up, like, oh, I'm, a, I'm a Patriot now, you know. So <laughs> that was good. But, you know, right away I asked um, the D coordinator, um, uh, Pat, uh, Matt Patricia, excuse me, uh, was like, hey, you know, I would like to get the playbook so I can get going on the defensive terminology, uh, you know, the schemes. And, and him and Pat Graham was like, yeah, um, <laughs> see, the thing is with that, <laughs> he was like, look, just just take these three pieces of paper, three pieces of paper. Now, I know we've all seen Smoke. You've been around yeah. long, Lance, you too. We've seen the old paper playbooks, not the die pads, but the paper playbooks. They're like five inches thick. You know what I mean? And yep. that's what I'm used to, that much information, you know. And he gave me three pieces of paper to get ready to play Peyton Manning on Sunday. <laughs> and I was, like, so thrown off by it. Um, but it ended up working out. There was some terminology that I didn't know, but you know that's the Patriots, man. You know they don't want to give you too much, you know. And it's like, look, they don't want to overwhelm you as well. So I think they were doing both myself and the organization a favor because they're like, maybe we don't know if Casillas is really going to work out. So you know we don't want to give him too much. And at the same time, it's like, well, maybe he will, he'll get overwhelmed if we give him too much, you know. So I kind of saw it as that. But it was interesting that they only gave me three pages to get prepared to play the Peyton Manning led Denver Broncos on Sunday. It was very interesting. Wild experience, as you just noted. Now, John, I'm curious, then as the weeks progressed, when you look back at your experience on New England's defense, prior to arriving in New England, you had worked with a lot of different defensive coordinators. You had been exposed to a lot of defenses. I believe, what, you had Greg Williams and Spags in New Orleans. You had Bill Sheridan in Tampa yeah. Bay. So, you know, you had a variety of different schemes. How much different was life in New England on defense versus what you had previously experienced just in terms of week-to-week preparation and terminology? Well, it was very different, and um, they're really big. I mean, everybody game plans, but they're really big into manipulating their own defense uh, every week you know, to go against what the other offense has. Um, and th- that's unlike anywhere I've been, you know. Defensive coordinators, they have their own style of defense. You know, some some uh, defensive coordinators are, like, aggressive and they blitz a lot. And, you know, they, they carry that. And then, of course, they throw in they, – they self-scout and they throw in their curveballs every now and again. You know, and that goes to the same for, you know, uh, uh, coaches that, you know, are probably more zoned. Uh, zone playing coaches, you know, they stick to that. New England, I, don't, I mean, Matt Patricia was a defensive coordinator, but you had so much input from all the other coaches. And ultimately, Bill Belichick 
was the micromanager of the entire team. And usually when people say micromanager, it's not really like an, a, term of, a term of endearment. You right. know, it's, it's more like your micromanaging is too much for you to handle. But Bill is such a great coach and he's such a great mind that him micromanaging the whole team is how the Patriots have success. And for every week, just like offensively, you have a game plan. Defensively, the entire playbook is manipulated every week. So I think that was kind of the reason that they didn't give me the playbook in the beginning because every week it's different. And every week they attack the offense differently every week. And that's, I mean, like I said, there's, I've been, Spags, you know, good defensive coordinator. I've been around, you know, defensive coordinator Greg Williams, you know, where, you know, they have a game plan and then you manipulate it a little bit. They manipulate before they even, like, install. Like, they're already changing the whole entire defense before you even get to the week, uh, given the offense that you're playing. And for anybody that knows football, that's, that's a lot to ask, you know, for, uh, you know, a defense to basically have a different identity every week. Um, but that's what the Patriots are all about. It's not about what we do good as in the Patriots. It's not about what the Patriots do good. It's about what the other team does well and let's stop them from doing what they do well so we have a chance to win the game. You know, Jonathan, I think that was the other part of the story that I remember. You said, well, why don't you just give me what you guys did for install in, in training camp and in the spring? And they kind of said to you, well, that really doesn't apply anymore. And you were like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. So if you can just talk about some examples, how much can change week to week? Are we talking, you know, tendencies of blitzing, you know, who the top corner covers, who gets doubled, or are we talking basics like three, four man front, how you do gap integrity, like how deep do the changes actually go week to week depending on the opponent? Well, and, 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 and that's a great question you ask, and I'm going to be honest with you, it, it varies so much from week to week. You know, let's say we're going against a team, you know, who has shown that they struggled against a five man front and a nose guard in front of their center. You know, that was the front we're going to play that week. Wow. You know, no matter what we played the week before, because we know this team struggles against a five-man front, we're playing a five-man front. That's what we're doing because that's what this team struggles with, right? And let's say there's another team, right, that has a great receiver, right? We're going to roll to the receiver. And, and back then in 2014, you got to listen to the cornerbacks we had. You know, Darrell Revis, Brandon Browner, who was 6'4", 225 pounds. <laughs> uh, Logan Ryan, Kyle Arrington. Oh, I'm, a, I'm almost forgot. Malcolm Butler <laughs> was a was a rookie coming off the bench at this time. But we were we were pretty loaded and stacked, and that allowed a lot of versatility for the defense. So we would go in the game and we would lock Rebus on the number two. And if the number one was really good, we would send Brandon Browner over there to beat the receiver up and have McCourty over top. Wow. And then you got Logan Ryan playing her number three or Kyle Arrington playing her number three. And it was a lot of things that we would do, like I would get in the game and match up on the back. You know, there were certain things that you would do given uh, the team. And I'm, like I'm saying, there is, like, it don't be, like, you know how there's carryover from week to week? There's, like, no carryover. You know, <laughs> if you're playing a running team one week and then a passing team the next week, your defense, the Patriots defense, is probably going to be totally different. You know, the front might be different. The guys on the team may be different, as in that 11 to 13 guy rotation or even 15, that'll be totally different. They might have, a, a you know, three or four new DBs starting this week, 
a, a couple guys rotating in, maybe a linebacker that hasn't played in three weeks. But, you know, we need more linebackers because we're playing a 3-4 this week instead of a 4-3. Like, there's so many things that vary. Um, and I think, you know, for you to have success in New England, you got to be versatile. You know, you got to be able to be a, a – a, what's the, the Swiss Army knife? you got to be a Swiss Army knife. you got to be able to do multiple things. And that adds so much value to you. And a lot of players that go to New England, they can do so many different things for them. And that's why they have success. We're talking with former Giants linebacker Jonathan Casillas, who was in New England for half of 2014 here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. So I guess the million-dollar question now, Jonathan, that at least Giants fans are asking, based on what you just described and experienced in terms of the structure and fluidity of the New England defense, well, how much is Patrick Graham now going to bring that style to the team? And we look at Matt Patricia, who you were with. He's now the head coach of the Lions. Brian Flores, who was on the staff, he's now in Miami. How much do you think Patrick Graham is going to take from the Bill Belichick coaching style versus twist it and turn it into his own thing? I think he's going to do both. You know, I think it would be, um, you know, uh, it really would make sense for him and, and and to not use what he's been taught by one of the greatest coaches of our time in any sport, um, but then also, you know, identifying who you have on the roster, uh, who you have, you know, to work with, and then putting your own identity on it. And, you know, I feel like Pat Graham, he's learned so much, and, you know, he's a guy that has been so versatile. You know, he was a linebacker coach, a mm-hmm. D-line coach, a DB, and a defensive coordinator. and You know, kind of been all over the place. But I think that versatility is going to give him, you know, uh, um, you know, it has given him a lot of, um, you know, education in different parts of the game. You know, I think, and that's going to translate over to him being a great defensive coordinator. You know, because it's not just the X's and O's, you know. It's, it's identifying with the players you got in the locker room. You know, and a lot of Great coaches sometimes don't be great people. People, uh, great player coaches, you know, not player friendly. And I think that transition over the years, you know, while when I got in the league in 2009, you know, to while I finished in 2017, that has transitioned to being, you know, if you're not a player coach, you really can't survive with this new generation. You know, so it's a little bigger than the X's and O's. It's about culture, you know, and having the players trust and believe in you. And I think Pat Graham has risen to that, to where he's been. The, he's uh, he's gotten the defensive coordinator job, and the people and the players will believe in him because I feel like he is a player, is a coach that believes in the players, not the scheme, not that he makes all the good ideas, but the guys that he put in certain positions, you know, because of his education and everything that he's learned, but also his study and his due diligence on those guys that they'll be put in the right place to win. And that's what the Giants needed. You know, I feel like over the last three or four years, uh, the Giants have gotten rid of some of their primetime defensive players. You know, whether that's due to culture, whether that's due to off-the-field issues, whatever the, whatever the deal is. You can't continue to do that. You can't continue to get rid of your good players thinking the coaches are going to be the ones that makes the big difference. When we all know the players run the NFL, the players are the face of the league, the players are the guys out there playing, you know, so we got to focus on the players. And when you have a coach that is X's and O's 
you know, uh, a genius in X's and O's and can put players in the right position to be successful, that's when you have success. It's a combination of all those things, and I feel like now the Giants are finally taking a step in the right direction. Man, Johnny, I think you hit it on the head. You know, the old expression, it's about the Jimmys and Joes, not the X's and O's. And I, th- yeah. I think you're 100% right, and that's something Joe Judge has stressed, that you have to build what you do around the talent on your roster. And one thing that Blake Martinez said to us, you know, he was coached by Patrick Graham in Green Bay, the one year he coached linebackers there. He said he never felt so prepared for an opponent each week than when Graham got him ready for those opponents. What was it about, you think, when you were with him in New England that he talked to you guys about and got you ready each week that really helped you guys once the ball was snapped on the field so you were prepared for everything that specific opponent was going to try to throw at you? Well, he really cares about his job, you know. He really cares about the game, you know, and and he studies it. You know, he wants everybody in the room to be just as knowledgeable, just as knowledgeable as he is. And I saw that when I was there. And, of course, not getting a playbook the first week was nerve-wracking for me, you know, especially when Bill's like, you're going to play defense. And I'm like, how do I play defense? And I only know three calls. Like, how is that going to work? <laughs> but, but Pat Graham, he, like, I when I was there, he gave me extra time. You know, he would stay after for me and, you know, kind of talk me through certain things and, you know, I would stay after practice and with the younger guys, you know, the younger guys would be there at the practice. And I wasn't really that young at the time. You know, we were talking about rookies and second year guys. And I stayed after and Pat Graham would walk me through certain things and made sure that I was ready. You know, he wasn't going to throw me out there, you know, if I wasn't ready and prepared. And I would, I'm the same way. And, you know, I feel like bringing that attitude to New York, you know, and with this generation, I think is perfect. You know, because at the end of the day, preparation is everything. You know, and, and from my time, my little time that I was in New England, I felt New England did a great job, probably the best in the league at preparing their guys every weekend. You know, the talent sometimes didn't add up to the amount of wins that they had at the end of the year. But that's why the, the, the franchise was so strong for so long. You know, and I'm hoping that, you know, Joe Judge and Pat Graham, you know, all of the things that they've learned from, from Bill Belichick, that they can bring it over to New York. And this is the new coaching tree. You know, the old coaching tree was was Bill Parcells and all of the guys that followed underneath him. Yeah, Bill know, Walsh too, right? Belichick. Yeah. Right, yeah, yes, Bill Walsh. And, and I'm talking about the direct Parcells, the lineage, yep. you know, the yep. Coughlins and the Sean Paytons and all of those guys who've had tremendous success, you know, in their own right and won Super Bowls in their own right. This is the new you know, uh, a coaching tree from Bill Belichick. And I'm hoping we got one of the guys (laughs) that's going to be the new Bill Belichick, be the new Sean Payton and Joe Judge. Um, And, like, I'm excited about it. I was excited about the hire. I know nobody knew him, but I'm like, I know Joe Judge. I know Joe Judge. (laughs) I was excited. You know, nobody was like, I don't know who is Joe Judge. It was a surprise for me. But at the same time, when you go back and you sit down and think about the candidates and you look and it's like, all right, we're going to give somebody with the potential to be, you know, be basically the next Bill Belichick. And, you know, for, for and it's, it's potential, and everything's done on potential, usually. You know, you, you go off what people have done, and sometimes they don't do as much as the next person, so you go off potential. You know, and, and I'm hopeful that we do have the next Bill Belichick. I'm hopeful. I'm not saying he is, but I'm hopeful. And um, it'll be good for the New Jersey and New York area, that's for sure. 
Well, you just brought up Joe Judge, and you absolutely got to know him, as you mentioned, Jonathan, in 2014. Scott O'Brien was the special teams coach, so at that point, Joe Judge was the special teams assistant. What was the extent of your interaction with Joe Judge as the assistant special teams coach, and what did you see in him, Jonathan, that perhaps when you heard he became the Giants head coach, you said to yourself, yeah, you know what? I think this guy had the material to now make the transition. You know, at first, you know, when I met Joe, uh, he, like like you said, he was the, the special teams assistant. And Scotty O was the, uh, we call him Scotty O. He's the, uh, the special teams coordinator. So he's doing more of like the logistics and the big picture, you know, uh, and, and then Joe would take it and break it down for me, like the small picture, the details. And, you know, like, hey, he already knew exactly, like, the stuff I've been doing on special teams. Like, he knew everything. He's like, yeah, I saw that one game when you played a little bit of defense, but then you were playing on three-core three, three core and you had a great play on. And I'm like, dang, like, they, these dudes know who I am. Like, <laughs> not just like a guy that's, you know, a good teamer, but, like, they know that week four against Philly – you know, whatever, I had like three tackles on special teams. Like, they know all of this information. They're uber-prepared. Um, and Joe Judge, you know, being – John, when you're low on the totem pole, you know, when you're not uh, a, a coordinator, you're an assistant coach, the responsibilities and the amount of studying you have to do, I think, is a lot more. Yeah. And especially when you're special teams because you have to understand both offense and defense and special teams. You know, you have to be well aware of the things, of timing on the sideline during games, of uh, certain uh, uh, practice times where special teams is done, uh, the amount of reps that offensive and defensive players that you have on your three-core are getting, you know, the reps that they're getting, you have to be mindful. So a special teams coordinator, especially an assistant special teams coordinator, you know, they're going and they know, they know the entire roster. You know, from 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 the quarterback to the holder. You know, he knows the entire roster. And Joe Judge, you know, me and him had some personal conversations because I'm not a guy that's going to sit down and be like, I'm just going to go out there. Like, I want to learn as much as I can, and I want to do and be prepared as much as I can. So, when Scotty O was busy talking to Slater and you know and uh, Browner and uh, I'm excuse me Bolden and you know all of those special teams guys. I'm over here asking Joe Judge, like, hey, Joe, you know, what do you think about uh, this scheme and me doing this on that? And he would break it down for me. So he was a guy that played his role, uh, you know, better than any role player that, you know, that could possibly be a role player uh, to the point where, you know, he wasn't even like that guy on the Patriots, but he did his job so well. John, he did his job so well that now he's the head football coach of the New York Giants. Like, he wasn't the guy. He was never the guy. You know, he was always, you know, the second guy or, or the third guy as in the special teams coordinator. You know, and, and he wasn't the special teams coordinator for that long. But he did such a good job. He, was impre- he impressed so many people that, you know, he ended up getting his job. And I think that he has a lot to prove, just like anybody and, you know, it's going to be tough. This is freaking New York. You know, this, ain't, this ain't no walk in the park. No. You know what I mean? Like, this is it's going to be very, very tough, very difficult. The media is going to get after him. But I feel like how he came out and addressed the media the first day, you know, kind of laying the, the law down as the judge, 
you know, I think he he's in he's uh he took the right step forward, and now we're going to see how things play out. And you know, we want to get the right people in the building. We want to see you know the right things being done off the field as well as on the field. You know, because it's a long time coming, uh, John. You know, Mike, the, the 2016 season when we when we went to the, the playoffs and we lost to Green Bay. You know, if you take that season away, the Giants have not been good. And 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 I got I just got goosebumps talking about that because you know I'm a Jersey boy through and through. Yeah, I know, you know it. And, yep. <laughs> you know, and and you know, basically after you know the Super Bowl in 2010 and 11, you know the Giants really had one good season when I was there. That's it. And and think about all the talent. All the good running backs, you know, the Bradshaws, the Barclays, you know, we had a, you know, a prime time elite quarterback for 17 years. Um, you know, like, how? How how have the, how has the Giants been so bad? So, like, I'm hopeful. You know, I know a lot of guys are hopeful. John and Lance, I know y'all are hopeful. Yeah, we are. You know, so, you know, let's, let's all keep putting that positive energy out there and let's see how – Joe Judge, Pat Graham, and everybody does, and and Sean, and Jason Garrett too. Wow, saying that name. Last one from me on on Judge Jonathan. What's the biggest challenge you think for him uh, this year? We know you have this unique off season. Guys are doing everything virtually. You know, as a player, you know, and, you know he. he you mentioned the difference between being an assistant and being a head coach. You're dealing with almost completely different things in terms of managing logistics versus, you know, really player-on-player, player, X's and O stuff. What's going to be the biggest challenge for you, big picture-wise, for Joe Judge in his first year making that transition in this unique environment? I think uh, because being a head coach, you know, you kind of can do and, and, and you kind of have as much power, um, you know, so it's like, you know, you're given this power. Do you do you do you use it all, or do you delegate it out? You know, do you delegate this power, this voice that you have, this influence that you have? You know, you can either take that and dominate. You know, be the micromanager that Bill Belichick was, or see yourself for the person you truly are. You know, if you're a role player, then excel in that role, and then eventually, of course, you know you can grow. And I feel like Joe Judge. Right now, he's not the head coach that he can possibly be. No one is who they possibly can be, who they possibly can be when they first start out. So you let guys like Patrick Graham and Jason Garrett, guys who have been there, I mean, you know, he was a head coach of the Cowboys, you know, and you allow them to do their jobs, you know, and you learn from them. You know, you pick their brains. You call Matt Patricia over in Detroit and see what's going on with him and Brian Flores. and You stay on that call every week with Bill Belichick. You do these things, and you keep bringing up who you are as a player, excuse me, as a coach, as a man, you know, as somebody who carries an organization with him and behind him, you know, a whole band of brothers and men behind you. You know that as a leader, you got to keep improving and not try to dominate or, you know, have your power over the team, you know, uh, on a consistent basis. Delegate the power. Delegate the, uh, you know, the coaching responsibilities to guys who have been there before. You know, and I feel like for Joe Judge to do a great job, it has to be a collective unit from all of the coaches and the power and the, and the um, responsibility has to be dispersed the right way. And I think 
the reason why he hired the guys he hired is because he's going to do that. So that's why I'm excited because I feel like he's not going to try to overpower the Giants and be like, this is how I am. You know, this is me. Do it this way. I think he's going to be, you know, very empathetic about listening to his players, listening to his coaches, and allowing them to do what they do best for the Giants' success. You just laid out the transition, Jonathan, that Joe Judge is going to have to make. And on top of that, he also has to navigate uncharted territory, as you well know, in terms of what's going on in the country with respect to this offseason and the global pandemic. I'm curious your perspective because you were with the Saints in 2011. That was the lockout year. And if memory serves me correct, you didn't have a lot of turnover. The coaching staff under Sean Payton pretty much remained intact with your coordinators, the core of the team. So I would think that probably aided you guys, given the fact that you had a shortened training camp. But the Giants don't have that luxury, as you well know, Jonathan. Completely new coaching staff, a lot of new young players, as you noted, how much of a disadvantage is that for Joe Judge and the rest of this team compared to what you experienced in 2011 with the Saints? Well, I mean, you could see it as a disadvantage, you know, but also an, an opportunity, you know, to, you know, everybody hasn't been together. You know, this is, um, you know, uh, off season that has been like any other, um, you know, because even back then, you know, when they canceled you know, off-season activities and, you know, they push back training camp, you know, we were still uh, allowed to gather, you know, with the, with the group, you know, with all the social media uh, guidelines, social media, social distancing uh, guidelines, you know, restricting people from actually being together. It puts everybody in the league um, in a, you know, in a, I guess in the same type of, um, you know, situation to where nobody has been together, you know, and like I said, back in um, 2010, going into 11, you know, uh, that was the year where the New Orleans Saints, we practiced at Tulane, and it was led by Breeze and Vilma, but we were all together, you know, but yeah. no one is together in the entire league, you know, no one was able to get together with all the guys and do what they're supposed to do, and if they did, I mean, it probably wasn't as normal, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eli would take guys down to Duke and do his thing, you know, but like that wasn't able to happen. Like there was a lot of things that wasn't able to happen. So it's almost like, you know, it's 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 a disadvantage for everybody. So that puts an advantage back into Joe Judge's and the Giants' uh, court because it's a disadvantage for everybody. You know, having, you know, a new coaching staff is always a time and, um, you know, place where it's going to be some, you know, some, some, some tough, some tough times, you know, and some transitions to happen and, you know, uh, culture being established. But, you know, now that we, we all had to go through the COVID pandemic situation, I feel like everybody has to make up ground, you know, and I think it kind of levels the playing field a little bit more. I think it could be advantageous for the Giants because it's like everybody's starting at the same mm. time. And, you know, we're back – Giants and the Jets, they were back a little bit earlier than everybody else, if I'm not mistaken. You know, so I believe that they were still doing, um, you know, virtual things to stay in contact with the guys. You know, but now we're going to see, you know, what, what everybody's been doing. We're going to see, you know, the approach to how we're going to, you know, start this season because this is something that no one has been a part of. Um, and like I said, 
it's a disadvantage for everybody, and that might have been an advantage for the Giants because of that. Jonathan, final question. I want to go back to the defense for just a second, and we really appreciate all the time. This is just tremendous insight. We, it, it, It's great. Thank you. Um, how tough is it going to be for a defense that's as young as the Giants' defenses, especially in the defensive backfield? They have James Bradbury, otherwise a bunch of guys that are in their first, second, third seasons to have a defense that changes so much week to week. Is that going to be a real challenge for the coaching staff to have those guys ready? Are the coaching staff, are they going to have to pull back a little bit based on the youth and the defense? How do you think that's going to work? I think you got to feel out and see what type of guys that you have, you know, and see what they're capable of handling, you know, because you don't want to put, um, you know, young guys out there um, that can't handle what you're doing, you know, so you might have to keep it simple. You know, they say keep it simple, stupid. You know, just just so you don't have, you know, guys out there looking confused. And when I watched the Giants last year, I feel like that's what I saw. And then you would listen to the younger guys' interviews, and they always said the same thing. It's like, yeah, we're just gelling together. We're all just trying to, you know, figure out where everybody belongs at. And I'm like, bro, it's week 10. What do you mean? What do you you mean it's week 10, bro? It's not training camp. Um, You know, so, you know, I, I feel like, look, you know, if you got a whole bunch of guys, you know, who, uh, you know, struggle with learning multiple coverages, then keep it simple. You know, like, let's not try to confuse the other team, but in the process we're confusing our guys. You know, and I feel like there was a lot of confusion um, uh, throughout the Giants' defense last year, and it was kind of hard to watch. You know, and that there's no easy answer to that. You know, it's like, is it the coach? Is it the scheme? Is it the guys? Uh, the players, it's all, it's a combination, you know, it's a combination of all of those things. And, you know, everybody has to be on the same page and you have to learn every week. You know, we're going to go, we're going to make mistakes. And I say we, as in every single person in the world, of course, going to make a mistake, you know, in anything that they do, especially if you're just starting out, you know, so I think what the Giants should do is just keep it simple early, you know, do what they do, what they do, but keep it simple early. Don't add in 37 blitzes on Thursday because that's what you've been doing for the last 10 years. You know, maybe add in a couple, and then maybe next week add in a couple. Don't overwhelm your guys because when you overwhelm your guys and you got, you know, guys like uh, uh, Baker, DeAndre Baker, who was tremendous in college, but all of a sudden he gets in the league and he can't play. Like he can't play to the level that he was playing at. I think because he was thinking too much. I think because he was – you know, he wasn't confident about what he was doing out there. You know, and, and I think you've seen that a lot throughout the entire defense. And, you know, look, I'm not a D coordinator. I just know guys. You know, I've been a guy who struggled at times with schemes. And then later on in my career, you know, I was able to pick up defenses like it wasn't nothing because I was able to do that. And I had to learn to do that. You know, but everybody's different. You have to be able to identify who you have, you know, and teach them accordingly. You know, and then have everybody on the same page. So keep it simple, stupid, early, you know, and then build on it, you know, and then let your young players have success because they know what they're doing. You know, I feel like that didn't happen with the Giants last year. A lot of guys, you know, week 10 and week 11, they're like, yeah, you know, we're just, you know, getting to know each other. You know, we're starting to gel. And I'm just laughing, like, starting to gel? Like, y'all pass y'all bye week? Like, you know, like... (laughs) Like, it's November. Like, what are we talking about here? But, you know, that, that's not always on the players. You know, that's a collective effort. You know, if they're, they're giving you too much work, you know, they're giving you, you know, advanced algebra, you know, in, in calculus, and, you know, you're on addition. 
a sub, in subtraction. <laughs> like there's going to be some um, that's a problem. Know, some, um, <laughs> some problems there to say the least. So you know, I think it's a it's not an easy solve. It's not an easy fix. But there is an approach that I feel like you should take to it, and I hope they do because it's a it's not going to be easy. But I think the Giants deserve some some winning some winning seasons. Uh, you know, coming. It's been a long time coming for that. It has indeed. And Jonathan, speaking of the dynamics of the defense, and once again, greatly appreciate the time and insight today, as John noted. Before we let you go, I'm looking at the Patriots sack distribution from 2014 when you were on the team. And a lot of people look at the Giants pass rush potential this season and they say, well, there's only one guy that's had a double-digit sack season on the team, and that's Kyler Fackrell, the one year he was with Patrick Graham in Green Bay. The year you were with New England... You had six or seven guys that chipped in in the sack department, and nobody actually reached double digits. Rob Ninkovich was the highest with eight, and Chandler Jones that season had six because he was limited to 10 games. When you think back to 2014, what do you attribute? Why was it that you still managed to get 40 sacks as a group and how Patrick Graham may need to rely on that philosophy this year as opposed to one guy in particular doing the heavy lifting? Well, it's a collective effort. You know, when the guys in the back end are covering and the quarterback is holding the ball for an extra second or two on a consistent basis, you know, that allows for your four-man rush to get there. That allows for your extra blitzer to get there and um, take away that, you know, that hot route pass from, um, you know, the quarterback um, that they do when they see blitzes. You know, it's a collective effort. You know, I think unless you have, uh, you know, I just talked to JDP two days ago. He said he's going to break Michael Strahan's record. That's what JDP told me. So if he didn't put it out there yet, I'm putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> he told me that. But, like, you know, we don't have a JPP, at least stat-wise. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. saying that there's not a guy that can go out there and do what JDP did. Well, I don't think that can happen because he's a freak of nature. But, you know, you got to have a – it's a collective effort. You know, if, if you have a guy who can come out of nowhere – you know, and have a great season like so many guys have done, uh, you know, and have a breakout tremendous 15-plus sack season, that will be great. But don't get it twisted. It's not a one-man wrecking show when that happens. It's DB's covering for a little longer. It's the linebackers getting snugging up on those check downs. It's whoever is actually blitzing free, blitzing with no wasted steps. You know, like it's a collective effort, and for – the Giants to get to where they want to get to, to be able to pressure the quarterbacks that they want to. The DBs have to cover. You know, the linebackers have to get the call out and get everybody lined up and cover and do their things they're supposed to do. And then also the front need to be shared, and y'all need to be running the right defenses to put you in the right position to have success. So there's so many different things that go into it. But short, my short answer, even though I just did a long answer, <laughs> is it has to be a collective effort. You know, there's not going to be uh, uh, a guy that has 20 sacks and that the, um, the DBs aren't worth a damn. It's just not going to happen. You know, it's a collective effort. Um, Von Miller has had so many sacks, but you can't say they didn't have tremendous cornerbacks and defensive backs his yep. entire tenure there. You know, so it's like, yes, he's going to have sacks, and yes, they're going to have, you know, good defenders on the back end, but they help each other. You know, once you get those pressures out and you get those tips and you get those, you know, hits on the quarterback, all of a sudden the ball comes out. The ball is a little bit higher than it's supposed to be, coming out a little bit quicker than it's supposed to be. Those those PBUs, the interceptions, fumble recoveries, like all of those things add up. 
And it doesn't just start with a pass rush. You know, it does, people say it starts with a pass rush. It doesn't just start with a pass rush because I don't care how good the pass rush is. If the cover, if the, de- the defensive back can cover, it don't matter. If they're not securing, uh, you know, uh, getting that ball out under, uh, um, excuse me, if they're not holding the ball for longer than three seconds, it don't matter. Yep. You know, so yep. it's a collective effort. Uh, you know, I think the Giants, um, you know, are positioning themselves to be a good team. You know, but um, we, we're going to see. You know, I'm very excited about, you know, who's on the roster and who they brought in. Um, I think Marcus Golden is, is tremendous. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll see, man. You know, I'm excited. I'm excited that football is going to be back. It's going to be weird. What do you guys think is going to happen with, the, with, the, with fans? Like, what's going to happen with that? Oh boy, yeah, it's a good yeah. question, man. Uh, look, they're going to try because obviously I, I can't imagine how weird it's going to be. You're watching a football game and it's just silence except for guys talking. It's just weird. They're going to try to do fans, but look, Jonathan, here's the deal. And look, you know this. that You have to err on the side of safety, and you yeah. got to be careful. So hopefully it works out, but I, I don't think there's any way to know. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, well, I think all of us are living day-to-day right now, right? We kind of got to figure <laughs> out as we go along. Yeah. Jonathan, yeah. it's as fluid as the Patriots' defense every week. I think that would be the best parallel. <laughs> it's a big question mark. Just take these three pieces of paper, and that's how you go. That's what you're gonna go about your day with. Jonathan, good stuff, man. Do you have a message or anything you want to promote? Anything you want to say to Giant fans out there that are listening to this? The floor is yours. Well, you know, for, for number one, you know, with everything going on, you know, I want to say uh, uh, Black Lives Matter. You know, and when people hear that, don't get offended by it. And if you are getting offended about it. Do your research. Understand why it's being said. You know, understand that there are, you know, things that, that are going on in this country that aren't right. You know, and it's not always just a color thing. You know, it's like a love and hate thing and compassion and empathy thing. You know, if you don't have love in your heart for everybody, then that's something wrong. Yep. You know, and, and you know, it's hard and it's difficult for me, but I know it's even worse for other people. Imagine George Floyd's family. You know, and all of, you know, Ahmaud Arbery and all of the people that have, you know, loved ones taken from them from an unfortunate uh, situation. But too many of these things have happened, and we, we can't stand by and allow these things to continue to happen. So educate yourself, um, you know, do right, promote love, promote unity, have compassion, have empathy, you know, be an open book. You know, and protect your brother. You know, your brother might not look the same as you. You know, but we're all in this together. You know, we all came together for COVID, right, John? Yes, yep. we all came together yep. during the pandemic and said we got to do it together. You know, but this thing been going on for so long, and now that people, our eyes are open and their hearts are open, now let's understand. Just like we did the COVID, we got to do this together too. You know, and um, that's my say on that. Um, my Ford Progress Camp. Uh, we've been doing some uh, digital virtual uh, courses uh, with like a summit we've been doing, like a leadership summit we've been doing every every Thursday for the last few weeks. Uh, so I'm posting that on my website, uh, forwardprogresscamp.com. Follow me on Instagram, jade underscore 52. You know, shoot me a message. I'm always here, John and Lance. Thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Good talking to you guys. It's been a long time. Hey, Jonathan, God bless, man. Great message. We echo it. Um, and that's, uh, let's try to do this more regularly, man. This was fantastic. Let's talk soon. Yeah, really appreciate yeah. it, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Y'all got my number. Hit me up. Oh, anytime, my man. Thanks, Jonathan. Be good. <laughs> Stay safe. Yeah, take care, Jonathan. Send the best of the family. That's Jonathan Casillas. What a fantastic job, Lance. Holy cow.
That was great. <laughs> I can't say enough about how great he was. Oh, it my was goodness. just one of those interviews where I just felt so comfortable sitting back and absorbing as much as possible because just uh, listen. All you yeah, got to do is all sit of this stuff. Listen. Yeah, absolutely. Listen is is a key term. I think that I take away from that interview. He provided so much insight on many different fronts. Really took us behind the scenes, which is what you want out of an interview where somebody's been there and lived that. So, you know, it was really fascinating to hear him talk about the dynamics of the defense uh, as well as what he saw in Joe Judge. The, the little things that he picked up on from Joe Judge and the conversations they had when he mentioned Scott O'Brien, the special teams coordinator, was working with some of the other players and he would take Joe Judge to the side and how Judge knew everything about Casillas and what he contributed on special teams when he was with Tampa Bay before he even arrived at New England. That attention to detail, you know, those are some of the things that he's been preaching since he's taken over as Giants head coach and now to hear it firsthand I thought that was extremely insightful yeah and I think you understand why I told you he was one of my favorite people to talk to in the locker room when he was with the team yeah oh just a great interview um yeah and look I think the stuff on defense was the most fascinating See, now I've heard a lot of those stories from him before so I wasn't surprised by it. I think I've relayed them on the show before too but I think it, it's really impactful to, to hear you know when Joe Judge talks about forming his game plans, and Patrick Graham talks about forming his game plans defensively based on opponent, you know, there are different levels to it. And I think it'll be interesting to see, Lance, to what level we're going to see that with the Giants this year. Is it going to be to the same level we saw in New England? Because to Jonathan's point, you got a young group of guys. How much can you do it? I don't know. You know, it'll be curious to see exactly how much of that Belichickian approach and he mentioned it, you know, Belichick micromanaged that stuff. He didn't, you know, leave that to the coordinators. You know what I mean? He micromanaged yeah. that stuff. So how much does that get passed on and how much does Graham utilize that given the type of people, the personnel and the youth that's on the team? Yeah, I think that was a great point. The personnel is different. This is not New England all over again. And that's why I raised the question of, you know, we always hear about the Belichick coaching tree, John. And the one thing that's pressured on a lot of these individuals is, well, they're expected to just instantaneously duplicate the success of Bill Belichick. And, you know, when I talked to Nick Saban a few weeks ago, he said the same thing. It's just unfair. It's unfair to hold all of these assistants on the coaching tree to the same standards when it's completely different personnel that these coaches are being exposed to. And he also brought up a great point, John, about that 2014 team. If you remember, he was reading off all of the secondary members, right? He talked about Brandon Browner, and not just Brandon Browner being a veteran, but Browner's length and what Browner brought to the table. Yep. The safeties on that team, John, Patrick Chung and Devin McCourty, a young Malcolm Butler who made the big play in the Super Bowl, the year that Jonathan Casillas and the Patriots beat the Seahawks. This is not, once again, to take anything away from the Giants, but now you look at what the Giants are working with compared to what he had on the back end of his defense, I would say it's night and day right now. I mean, with the exception of Jabril Peppers, it's not as if you have a lot of seasoned vets that well, New England had at that time. Bradbury, a cornerback. Well, Bradbury, that's yes. true. Okay, that's fair. So I'll give you Bradbury. But the bulk between safety and corner, you're talking about a lot of youth and a lot of inexperience well, compared to what New England had yeah. at its disposal. And that's why I asked the question I asked, Lance, about whether or not you could do that. with this. And, you know, and he talked about, and I thought it was great. This is kind of, I think, what we've been trying to stress a little bit the last couple of years as we learn more about some of the analytics. And, uh, you know, it's funny. A lot of times you see, you know, what the analytics tell you is some things that the great coaches were doing before 
everyone knew about the analytics and the great coaches, they kind of figured out the uh, cheat code almost on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he talked about how it doesn't all start the pass rush because the pass rush doesn't matter if you can't cover anybody. And God forbid you can't rush the passer and you can't cover anybody. Then you're really in a Good lot luck. of trouble. Yeah. Exactly. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think it was really important that, it, you know, and this is why, you know, we've said it a million times here. When people talk about keys to the season, a lot of people bring up, well, where's the pass rush coming from? I talk about pass defense. And that, look, it, pass rush is part of that, obviously. But you have to be able to cover. And that's, to me, is going to determine whether or not this Giants defense is going to be good. How those young players play in the secondary. Can they cover? We will have to wait and find out. 100%. And I think that that's going to be a defining moment for the Giants defense this season. Do these guys mature and grow up very quickly over the course of the early stages of the season? Because if not... To your point, and that's why I brought up 2014, because I found it interesting. The closer I looked at the numbers, I said, wow, that was not a Chandler Jones typical season, John. Yeah, it's a good he question. Only, yeah, he only had six sacks that year. Now, partially was because he was hurt, and he only played 10 games, but Rob Ninkovich was the leader in sacks that season. He had eight. They had 40 sacks as a team, so they manufactured opportunities, but it goes back to what you hit on. They had guys that could cover, and what Jonathan emphasized. So in games where they weren't continually getting after the quarterback, at least they felt good about what was happening on the back end. Are the Giants and Patrick Graham going to get to the point where in games where they're not piling up the sacks, do they feel good with what they have on the back end? That, to me, is going to determine the outlook and upside of this defense. Yeah, absolutely. It should be fun to see and then see how it all uh, breaks down. All right, we actually have a phone call on the line. He joins us right now. Caller, what's your name? Where you calling from? You're on with John and Lance. How are you? Hiya, John. Hiya, Lance. This is uh, Chris from Alamucci. Chris, what's up, pal? Hey, what's Chris. on your mind today? How are you doing? Hey, hey, guys. Hey, first off, John, I haven't spoken in so long, and uh, I just wanted to give my condolences, uh, you know, um, and I'm sorry about the loss of your, your dad. So no, I, 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 once again. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, and on a lighter note, much lighter note, um, uh, Lance, enjoy you and David Deal on Chalk Talk. I know uh, John's probably not happy for me saying that, but uh, I do enjoy <laughs> listening to you and well, get some bonus uh, giant stuff. Len Lance is happy that he has at least one fan out there because, because frankly, he wasn't <laughs> sure about it. So now, well, no, no I knew I had about a half a fan, maybe. So now <laughs> I have the complete set. So no, one and a half. I'm sorry, I didn't yeah. mean to bring you down, Chris. I got one and a half fans now for those All of right. us hey, that's counting. A start. Yeah, because right, Chris, remember, no one, no one's a bigger fan of Lance than Lance. So he, that's so right. He only counts. As so one. I count as a half. So therefore, now I have one and a half. It's growing. Yeah, it's baby yeah. steps. All right, awesome, awesome. But I, I do I'm appreciate that, Chris. Thank you for listening. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, I'll make it quick. Just a comment and then a question for both of you. Uh, the not, 49ers in, tw in 2010 uh, went 6-10. and 10. Then um, Jim Harbaugh took over. Uh, there was the lockout. Obviously, they were still able to use, uh, you know, gyms uh, in, 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 uh, you know, around the country to get their workouts in. So right now, that has been an issue up until now. Um, however, they didn't have Zoom meetings back then, or, or, and they couldn't do that. So at least now they do have the Zoom meetings and getting together. So, you know, I'm, I'm drawing a parallel because, um, you know, Jim Harbaugh did bring his team to, uh, you know, the championship game, obviously against the Giants. So there is, uh, you know, I'm not saying the Giants are going to get to the championship game, but I do put a little faith in, uh, in that, and hopefully um, – you know, we could we could make uh, some meaningful games in December. That's my point. point with everything going on. Well, point. and the other thing that I'll add to that is the Bengals that year in 2011, if you remember, Chris, they drafted Andy Dalton 
and then he became mm-hmm. the starting quarterback. So, you know, there's another example of a team with a rookie quarterback, and all of a sudden the Bengals made the playoffs. So there are examples, to your point, where even in the lockout season, you had teams that a lot of people were doubting, and things clicked. And Now, the saying, beauty of those two teams is that they both had great defenses. 100%. That Bengals team and yeah. Niners team both had great defenses. Because I believe oh, yeah. Mike Zimmer was still in Cincinnati then. He yep. did not take over as the Vikings coach, so an experienced defensive coordinator. And then the Niners clearly had a lot of playmakers on the defense. It was a matter of the offense meeting the defense in 2011. So, yeah, the balance of both of those teams, I think, was a huge factor. But to your point, yeah, you can't eliminate anybody because of the turnover rate in the NFL. But I think right now on paper, it is realistic to think that teams that have new schemes, new coaching staffs, and young groups, I think are at a slight disadvantage, at least at this point. What happens once we get to the actual games, that remains to be seen. But I don't think it's crazy to say they could be dealing with a learning curve in the early stages of the season. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And uh, a question, and then I'll take it off the air so you guys can keep this thing moving. Um, If all things being equal... Would, would both of you rather see a defense against this Giants office? Now I, now, I know all defenses are different and they have strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. But if things were equal, would you rather see a fullback in the game going against a base defense or would you rather this Giants offense uh, play against a nickel? And I'll take it off the air. Wait, wait, Thanks, so, wait, wait so you're saying do you, would, I, would I rather have no, the sorry. Giants put three wide receivers on the field, play against the nickel, or would I rather see the Giants play either two tight ends and a fullback and play against the base? Is that your question? You got it. Okay. Exactly. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks, guys. Good stuff. Yeah, thanks, Chris. You know, that's a good question. I understand you want the power run game, but Lance, I am of the opinion, and this is why I've defended the use of 11 personnel a lot the last couple of years. Um, I do think the Giants' best personnel is Barkley, Ingram, Shepard, Tate, and Slayton. I think if you want to get the Giants' best players on the field at one time, those are your best players, right? Now, I do think I want to see a larger mix on early downs, first and second downs. I love running play action out of big personnel. I think it works. I think the analytics shows it works. You throw two tight ends in there. You run play action. Maybe you send only two or three players into the route. You leave the running back and tight end in the block to give the quarterback a little time. And then you try to make a big play downfield to either Ingram or one of the wide receivers. So, um... I hate I hate to give the uniform answer. Would I rather see 11 or would I rather see 21 or 12? I think, generally speaking, the Giants' best personnel group is their 11 personnel group with those five playmakers on the field at the same time. Now, once one of those guys get hurt or if they're not in the game, the conversation changes, and I do think there's a big value to playing running um, uh, play action at a big personnel. But, Lance, I think the Giants' best group is that, you know, one running back, one tight end, three receivers. I think that's their most talented group. I would agree with you. I think you want to put as many dynamic playmakers on the field at the same time. The one thing, though, I will say, I don't think you should put the fullback in, as Chris, the caller, yeah. noted. Two tight ends, right? Two tight ends, yeah. though, I'm much more open to as something that I would think would be right up there in terms of three wide receiver sets. And here's why, John. It has to do with the personnel that I think the Giants are working with this offseason compared to previous years. I am intrigued to see... Caden Smith and Evan Ingram on the field at the same time, which we did not have an opportunity to see last season because when Evan got hurt, Caden emerged, vice versa. So that's something that, okay, if you don't go with three wide receivers, I don't think you lose as much dynamics because both of those guys can catch the ball, and Caden certainly is more than capable in stepping back and being that blocker when Evan runs routes. So that's one option. The other addition is Levine Toilolo 
who has played a tackle position at times with the Falcons in the past. He's another guy who brings length and size to the front that if you had him and Caden and him and Evan in at the same time, I also would not have an issue with that. So it has more to do with the versatility they have at the tight end position this year compared to previous years. That, I think, adds a new intriguing option. No, I think you're right. And let me put it this way. When you get to the end of the year, the Giants' most common personnel group is going to be 11 personnel. Only because you're going to see that on third down of course, all the time. So... How about this? Chris, this is how I'll answer your question. If you think this is an equivocation, I apologize. But I, I, I like to give detailed answers. I think you're going to see 11 personnel more than any other personnel package more than half the time. But I think on first down and second and short, I would like to see more two tight end packages than three wide receiver packages. So maybe, you know, 30%, 22, you know, 50%. You know, 11, or I'm sorry, uh, 12, you know, about 30%, 50%, 11, and then you, you know, you have your goal line packages, four wide receivers, your fullback packages, things like that. So those to me should be, I'm with you, Lance, should be the two most common uh, personnel groupings they use. We have another caller on the line. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, this is Peter from the Keys. How you doing today? Peter, what's up, man? How hey, the, Peter. how the, it's like 90 up here, by the way. What is it like at the Keys? <laughs> it is 97 and hot. Oh, boy. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, couple, couple quick questions for you guys. First question I had was, I really enjoyed the conversation that Lance and Paul had regarding a caller a couple of days ago about Andrew Thomas. The caller was adamant about we drafted Andrew Thomas at four, so we have to start on left tackle. Hundred percent has to happen. Um, you guys had some pretty good points about it that maybe he could play right. And you want to have a duo, a combo of the two best because the bookends are kind of important to solidify. One thing that I was thinking about while you guys were talking was, you know, Eric Flowers was a top 10 pick. Eric Flowers wasn't challenged. And granted, you know, Andrew Thomas has some depth that he's going to go against, but Eric Flowers probably wasn't ready to start day one. And he played 15 games that first year. So maybe... I know it probably kills some New York Giants fans because we love whipping on Eric Flowers for the last few years. But if he had depth, maybe Eric Flowers would have sat on the bench and actually would have been a good tackle. And maybe Andrew Thomas needs to sit on the bench and let, um, let's see, who do we have? Uh, Cameron Fleming, Nick Gates, take yeah. the Yeah, exactly, exactly. And probably Solder, too, you know? So I thought that was kind of interesting that maybe Eric Flowers could have been something different. Maybe it's a blessing that Andrew Thomas isn't ready day one. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate the call, yeah, my appreciate friend. appreciate the call. It's close to him. Sure. We got to let you go. Um, I don't think the fact that Eric Flowers failed as a tackle has much to do with him playing that first year. I got to be honest with you. You know, his problem was technique, and, you know, David Dio and Shona Harris have talked about that incessantly, and you don't learn better technique by sitting on the bench. You learn better technique by playing. So I don't necessarily buy that. But as a larger point, look, if Andrew Thomas isn't one of the two best tackles, he shouldn't start. It's that simple. I will say this, though. I would be very disappointed if Andrew Thomas wasn't one of the two best tackles when all is said and done. Um, Cameron Fleming has not been a full-time starter in this league. It's not like Mike—if Mike Remmers was still on the roster, Lance, and they had Remmers and Solder— 
Yeah, it might be hard for Andrew Thomas to, to fight his way onto the field week one, but, you know, Cameron Fleming has not started that many games, and he's never been a full-time starter heading into a season. Yeah, he's been a journeyman. Right. Now, I, and he's been a swing tackle. I think Andrew Thomas can beat him out. Fleming is a solid NFL player. Um, if, if he doesn't beat him out, then Cameron Fleming should start. But I, to me, you pick a guy fourth, you would hope he would be able to be good enough, even with this unique offseason and all that stuff, to win the starting job right away. Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. I just, getting back to the conversation that the caller was referencing on Monday, it was more of, I don't think he has to start on the left side immediately, John. Oh, no, of course not. Yeah, and, and you no. weren't saying that. It was a matter of, if Nate Solder and Thomas are your best tackle combination, right now, given the fact that Solder, as I noted on Monday's show, has not played right since his first year, it makes more sense to put him where he's played most often in recent history. Thomas is not that far removed from playing on the right side from his college days, and then you slowly make the transition to left. So I think that makes more sense to get him the experience as opposed to sitting him simply because maybe you want to buy him more time to watch and learn. Yeah, and to me, I don't think you're going to want to move into the left side mid-year unless an injury yeah. makes you do it because you want to give him a full offseason to, you know, to, to make that transition. That, exactly, 100%. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think Thomas can play the right side, and if he is to transition over, that's fine. To your point, Lance, he started at right tackle more than 10 games for, for Georgia uh, just three seasons ago as a freshman. So it's not like it's been a long time since he's done it. And look, and somebody called up with this question uh, uh, last week. I think I was just screaming at that. I don't think I was hosting. And they made the point that Nate Solder is one of the most important players in the Giants this year. And look, Nate Solder having a bounce-back year is really important for this team to be better. And you need that to happen. And in my opinion, this is my humble opinion only, that the best position that gives you the best chance for him to have a bounce-back year is left tackle. I think the chances of him having a really good bounce-back year is reduced if you make him play a position he hasn't played, to your point, Lance, in like seven years. That, that's, that's not going to make that easier. So to get the most out of Nate Solder, I think you want him on the left side. And again, remember, left and right doesn't really matter anymore. Sometimes the best rushers are over the right tackle anyway. So, yeah. you know, I just think you want to get the guys in the position where you're going to get that best production out of them. And I think eventually that will end up being Solder at left tackle and Thomas at right tackle. Yeah, and if Thomas starts it right, to your point, what do you think? Defensive coordinators are going to say, no, let's put everybody on Nate Solder's side? No, they're going to want to test a rookie yeah. who had not much of an offseason, John, and especially with most teams having two elite pass rushers, Thomas is going to be tested. Whether you put him on the right side or the left side, it goes back to a conversation that we had with a recent guest. I, who, I forget who it was, and we were talking about there is no such thing, and John, you and I have brought this up. You don't hide offensive linemen no. in the NFL, no, okay? So we have to stop feeling as if, let's make it easy on the rookie and put him on the right side so we could pet him on his back and make him feel good. No, it doesn't happen like that. They will I'm find sorry. you. They will find you. <laughs> they will absolutely find you. There's only five of you out there. They're going to find you. Of course. One other thing that I wanted to throw out, John. Yeah, real quick. To piggyback off of our first caller, just to give you an idea of also why I'd be very surprised in the high utilization of a fullback. If you look at Dallas's snap counts last year when Garrett was in Dallas— Jamaze Olawali, their fullback, he played 11% of the offensive snaps, <laughs> just to give you an idea. Yeah, and they've used tight ends a lot. Go back to Jason Witten, Martellus exactly. Bennett, Blake Jarwin, Jason Witten. So they've used two tight ends a lot. I'm with you. Lance, yep. good stuff, man. 
Absolutely. Enjoyed the conversation. Yes, me too. And thank you very much to Jonathan Casillas with his great perspective. This will go up on the Giants Huddle podcast as well, that interview. Uh, We thank Jonathan. Thank you to Lance. Thank you to our callers. And we'll see everybody tomorrow on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks for being with us. Uh, That's the Tino and Fegels. They'll see you on Thursday at noon.